The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel. I'm the host for this podcast, and my husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer. He's the one who schedules people. If you have a story you would like us to tell, he's the one you want to reach out to. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com. Today's episode is episode number 155. One more episode after this one, and we will have completed our third year of weekly podcasting. We really hope that our podcasting has helped you or helped your loved ones in some way. That is our goal. Remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and please give us a five-star rating. Also, we are on YouTube. We are posting weekly videos. Sometimes you can actually see the person we're interviewing. Sometimes you can just see a still shot, but you can still hear the interview. But please subscribe to our channel on YouTube as well. We want to grow on YouTube because we know that a large group of people prefer YouTube to listening to audio podcasts, and we want to be sure that those people can find the podcast and get our message of hope and help. Today we have an interview with Shelley Winner. Shelley Winner's dad first got her drunk when she was 11. At age 13, she started smoking pot, and by 34, she was using and trafficking methamphetamine, heroin, and prescription pills. After a short-lived stint smuggling drugs across state lines, she was arrested and received a four-year sentence at FCI Dublin, a low-security prison for female inmates. With her father having been in and out of jail for most of her life to that point, Shelley joined 70% of children with incarcerated parents who follow them into the prison system. Shelley was released from federal prison in July 2016. She then enrolled in Code Tenderloin, an intensive program of job readiness, interview techniques, and coding. As a result of her participation in Code Tenderloin, she was hired at a very big tech firm. She started as a product service advisor with full benefits, including education reimbursement. She now advocates for formerly incarcerated people. Shelley is very active in the restorative justice movement in San Francisco and wants to educate the public about the benefits of hiring the formerly incarcerated. Let's talk to Shelley Winner. Shelley, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate you taking the time and being willing to share your story because I think it's important. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. So tell us, how did your, um, your history with drugs, how did that all get started? Tell us your background. Well, I grew up with, my, well, both my parents were teens when they had me. My mom got pregnant at 17 and my real father left and joined the army and my stepdad came into the picture. They ended up getting married and he raised me. He was my, to me, he was daddy. And, but, you know, things were good for the first few years. Um, and then my dad started drinking and it started with alcohol and he, um, he started going out all the time. He would leave me and my mom and my brother home alone for days. 
and wouldn't come home. He, and he, I think he got somewhere around 16 DUIs uh, within a period of five years. Wow. And yeah. And then the alcohol turned to harder drugs, uh, cocaine, and then methamphetamine um, was when it started becoming really popular, he got into methamphetamine. And <clears throat> I remember at the age of 11, living with my dad at one point, uh, and he got me drunk for the very first time. He played uh, quarters with me and my one of my schoolmates and taught us how to shoot the quarter in the, in the shot glass. And I got, that was the, yeah, that was the first time I'd ever gotten drunk. And I remember the next day I had to go on a field trip with my school to great America. And I just remember being not feeling well, being hungover. Um, but my dad always thought that using drugs was cool. He thought he always wanted to be cool. And so there was a time when, when he wasn't in prison and you know, I, I, when he had just gotten out, actually, he got his own place and I went to go live with him. And I was a freshman in high school and he told me that the rules of the house were simple. If I wanted to do drugs, then I had to bring them home and do them with him. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> and so this was the type of influence that I had. And although my mother wasn't an addict, she was, she was not really there for me. Um, if it wasn't for my great aunt, I don't know what would have happened to my brother and I, because my mom was more interested in her boyfriends than she was in raising me and my brother properly. And she would always go and drop me and my brother off at my great aunt's house. And that's where I remember a lot of my childhood growing up. She was, she was pretty old. And so she didn't, she didn't really watch us, I guess you could say. So me and my brother just did whatever we wanted. And I never had any positive role models. I never had any positive influences in my life to, you know, put me on the right path or tell me I was good or, you know, that I could do whatever I wanted. And so I just had, you know, my father who was pushing me to do drugs and then my mother who wasn't around for me. And so in high school, I chose to hang out with the wrong type of people. I hung out with the, the, the potheads and the, the people who like to drink and the addicts. And, and that's kind of how it all started. I started experimenting in high school uh, with weed and uh, alcohol. And then uh, I think at the, by the age of 17, I started using methamphetamine. Wow. Mm -hmm. You were so set up for this kind of life, you know? Yeah. And without anybody to give you any type of, you know, positive influence or positive messages, you know, it, it it's not surprising. And I and I hope that doesn't sound invalidated because I don't mean that. You know, we interviewed a, a gentleman on the podcast and he grew up in the projects in Miami and was surrounded by drugs. But on the other hand, he had not only some teachers who were very positive influences, but also his mother. So, and he was a good athlete, so he went in that direction. But you were, you were set up to go that direction. 
Yeah. I was set up for failure. And yeah. I believe in life, most of the time we become products of our environment because we don't know any better. That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. So you're 17 years old. You're mm -hmm. addicted to methamphetamine. Where did you go from there? <laughs> so I started dabbling with it on and off. I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was a full blown addict where I was using it every day. I was using it more recreationally. Okay. And I would do it in little, I would do it in spurts. So I do it for a week and then I'd stop. And then at the age of 21, I started bartending and turned to alcohol. And then being in that environment, being in a, in a, in a bar, of course, you're going to run into people that are doing <laughs> other things. Yeah. And so uh, there was this Coke dealer that uh, I had befriended and he started bringing cocaine into the bar. And then we'd stay there after hours when the bar was closed, doing cocaine all night. And then eventually I got into prescription pills and that was really when I started to develop a dependency and get addicted was when I started using, uh, I was introduced to Vicodins and, um, and just started using Vicodins all the time. Okay. And when I would get, yeah, when I would uh, get a hangover, my cure-all was, oh, pop a couple Vicodins, it'll get rid of it. And so that became, you know, every day I was taking it. I was taking it if I was sad because it helped me get happy. I was taking it if I had a hangover. I was taking it just because I wanted to take it. <laughs> it was a cure-all. Yeah, it was a cure-all. <clears throat> yeah, and um, and then at the age of 25 is when I uh, really started using methamphetamines, and it was an everyday addiction. Uh, it was, I couldn't function without it. And uh, I started living my whole entire life, uh, waking up. If I didn't have enough drugs, uh, I was trying to find them. And that, I, I didn't even work. I didn't work for years. I just, I, I lived on people's couches. I was homeless. I lived in my car. And it just controlled my entire life. And did, were you selling drugs at that point? No, I didn't start selling drugs until uh, much later in life. Uh, I was for for I was always scared. <clears throat> excuse me, of getting caught. And so, to me, I always said, you know, if I want to stay under the radar, I'll just, you know, be be an addict, but never go into dealing drugs. And and then, but that changed later. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so keep going, yeah. huh? keep going. Yeah. So, um, I was always struggling, always homeless, always trying to find drugs, doing criminal activities to get drugs. And eventually I ran into, which is funny. I ran into my childhood sweetheart. He got a hold of me one day on MySpace, and we, we connected and from that day we were inseparable and he was doing drugs too and we had we had been together for maybe about a year and a half and i just got i i got sick of being an addict i got sick of doing nothing with my life and 
he was a pretty skilled construction worker. So I went online on monsterjobs.com. I put up a resume for him and he ended up getting a call for a job out in Louisiana. And he ended up getting that job. So we packed up everything that we had in my little Honda and we drove to Louisiana to try to get sober. And we went out there for about a year and a half and he started cheating on me. Hmm. And uh, that's when I decided I was going to leave. And my friend told me about North Dakota and the oil boom that was going on and that since I had bartending experience, I could go out there and just make a ton of money um, working at one of the bars. So I applied online or I, I was looking online for a job. I found one, I applied for it and I got hired. So I left him and I moved to North Dakota. And the first night I was there, one of the bartenders pulled out some meth and oh. asked me if I had some. Yeah. And I thought to myself, I'll just smoke it this one time <laughs> and then I'll be done. Famous last words. Yeah, exactly. And that just ignited that, that, that beast again. And now I was out in a very remote area. Uh, most of North Dakota is very remote or rural and to find drugs, it was very hard. And if you did find some, it was very, you know, it was very expensive out there too. To put it into perspective, uh, I don't even know what prices it's been so long are anymore, but I think back then um, a gram of methamphetamine in Sacramento would have been around maybe 30, 40 bucks. In North Dakota, it was 250. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so it was very, very expensive and I, and the cost of living out there was very, very expensive. And I ended up losing my bartending job because I started using drugs again. And I had just moved into um, this little townhouse. I was paying $1,800 a month for rent for a two bedroom, uh, one bath townhouse. And I didn't know how I was going to survive. Uh, one with my addiction and the other with paying my bills and my car payment and all of that. So I thought, well, maybe I'll just, I'll just call one of my friends from Sacramento, have them send me an ounce through the mail and I'll just, you know, sell a few, few grams of it and, you know, make some, make a little bit of money to pay my bills until I can figure something else out. And so I got the, the ounce of meth in the mail and I did, I sold a couple grams of it and it was the quickest $500 I'd ever made in my life. And that started another addiction, right? Money. <clears throat> yeah. So how old were you then? I was in my early thirties. I want to say 34, 30. Yeah. 30, I was like 33, 34 years old. Okay. Yeah, you I'm, don't look much older than that now, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I just I started I started selling drugs and I started making money like I've never made before, and that was exciting to me. I, I had an abundance of drugs and abundance of money, and once I got a taste of that, I I couldn't stop. Right. Now, were you, you were, were you still using while you were selling? 
Oh, of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what ended this time period for you? So living in a very rural area, uh, you, in my mind, so blind, but in my mind, I thought, you know what, I'm out in the middle of nowhere. I can sell drugs. No one's ever going to catch me. It's, it's fine. But little did I know that I lived in a small town. Everybody knows everybody. And when you're, you, you have activities going on, like I did people in, in you know, coming over at my house at all hours and <laughs> you stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so not only that, but there were people getting arrested that I had sold to and to get out of their, to get out of trouble, they were um, telling them who they got it from and who was selling. Yeah. They told them who their supplier was. So that's when the feds got involved and they started an investigation on me and, and they started following me. And I didn't catch on. It was funny because my, the, my boyfriend at the time was telling me that somebody was following me and I just thought it was the, the meth. I thought it was just being nuts, you know, and, and, and come to find out they were, they, were, they had been following me for a while, watching me. Um, and I ended up selling two ounces to a confidential informant. And so there was this girl I hadn't, I, I'd, I'd never met her before and she was connected with somebody that was in my circle. And that person that was in my circle had told me about her that she was looking to buy two ounces and I trusted this guy. So I said, okay, uh, you know, if, if you think she's, you know, uh, uh, you know, she's not, a confidential informant, then uh, I don't have a problem selling it to her. And she had me meet her in a parking lot, which would have been the, which should have been the first sign. <laughs> That's where they do sting operations. <laughs> and I go and I meet, uh, I meet her and I, I sold her the drugs and they had me. But what's weird is not weird. What, how the feds work is they typically don't arrest you right away. Okay. They will continue letting you break the law so they can build a a case. And what they have to do is they have to take all of this evidence to a grand jury and prove to them that I'm worthy of being arrested. And then they, that's when the indictment comes into play. Once that indictment is put into effect, they will come and arrest you. So it was about, maybe six months after I had sold, no, maybe four months. Yeah. It was about four months after I had sold to this confidential informant until they actually came and arrested me. Now, Shelly, I have a question. Why mm-hmm. was this not state or county or yeah, state or county? Why was this federal? Because they knew, and I'm not sure how I'm, I'm, I'm figuring somebody at some point had told them, but that I was getting it through the mail. And that also there were some times when I would actually drive to California and pick up and then drive all the way back home. So I was bringing it across multiple state lines. I was doing it through the mail. So that made it federal, although I didn't get charged with that, but they knew that 
I was, you know, I was doing that. Okay. So go on with your story. And so they, they had a bunch of FBI agents fly in from, I, 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 who knows, probably all over the place. They came and it's funny because my friend works at this, worked at this hotel where they were all checking into. And she told me, (laughs) she says, you know, there's a bunch of FBI agents that are checking into our hotel. It's really strange. Maybe you should be careful. (laughs) (laughs) And And were you? No, no. I, um, I, I ended up, they, they came in, in the about three or two or three in the morning and I had been up for a couple of days. So I, I passed out and they came banging on the door, uh, full gear rifles or, or not rifles, um, weapons, huge guns, you know, uh, I don't even know what type of guns they were, but they were huge. <laughs> and they're, they're Shelly winner, come out with your hands up. Oh, and I, I, that's what I woke up to. And I just, it took me a second to realize what was going on. And I just, I knew it was over. I knew, I knew it was the end. And they, they arrested me. They sat me down in the chair and I was just kind of out of it. I felt like I was in a dream. I just couldn't believe um, what was going on. It was hard for my brain to wrap it around, but I knew that I was going to be in a lot of trouble. And they took me to the local jail and that was the worst. It was overcrowded and they didn't have any, any beds. And so they put us in these, it's called a boat. uh, And they put us in these boats on the floor with a mattress that was maybe half an inch thick. It was just, yeah, it was horrible. And so I sat in that jail for about a week withdrawing, coming down. And not only was I doing meth, I started selling pills too. I was selling Oxycontins. I was selling Roxy, Roxy, Roxycodones, um, Vicodins. I I mean, and then I started selling heroin. And when I didn't have um, any pills, I was using heroin. So I had to come down off of all of that. Wow. Yeah. In a horrible cold jail cell in a boat on the floor overcrowded. (laughs) Uh, Finally, they decided that um, they were going to release me, but they were going to release me to a halfway house since I didn't have any connections to the community and I didn't have any family and, and pretty much all of my friends were addicts. They, they, they wouldn't release me anywhere else, but the halfway house. And I get to the halfway house and I had realized I hadn't had my period. And so, Oh my. Yeah. And so I got a pregnancy test and it came out positive. And so (laughs) here I was, you know, indicted by the feds with, and, and at this point I had learned about their mandatory minimum sentencing guidelines. And based on the amount of drugs that I had got caught selling, uh, I was looking at 10 years. Oh, oh, yeah. Shelly. Uh, uh, yeah. And you're pregnant. And I'm pregnant. Oh. Yeah. 
And that was a pivotal moment for me. I knew that if I didn't turn my life around, you know, regardless if I spent 10 years in prison or not, like I needed to change who I was and I needed to do it for my son. I wanted to be a better person. And this didn't, this didn't happen right away. So I, I stayed at the halfway house for about three months and I started bartending, bartending. I started waitressing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I started waitressing at a little restaurant called Brown Round and it, I was still, that desire to use drugs was still very, very strong and I didn't know what to do. You know, I'd have, I was having dreams about it. I was craving it and I, I just, I'd never done treatment before. And my friend, a girl I'd met, befriended at the halfway house told me about this treatment program that was actually down the street from the halfway house. She said it was a really good treatment program. It's called adult and teen challenge. Okay. It was faith-based and um, I, I'm a, I believe in God and I believe in, you know, higher power. And I thought that I needed to get spiritually right. That that was a good step, you know, to get, to get into a treatment center and, and, and have God's guidance and strength. And so I applied for the program and they accepted me. And what's crazy is that my probation officer told me that I wasn't allowed to go. She wanted me to stay at the halfway house. And there was now there were girls using drugs there. It was bad. Why did she want you to stay there? Was she getting a kickback? I don't know, but she, she did not want me to go to treatment. And so I applied to the treatment program behind her back. Well, I mean, you got to wonder why would somebody like that not want you to get clean and sober? I know it doesn't make any sense. I know. And so she got, she found, when she found out I applied, she got mad and she came up to the halfway house. Yeah. And she came to talk to me and she said, you know, I told you, no, why did you go and apply? behind my back and I just looked at her and I almost you know my eyes started to fill up with tears and I just said listen I'm sorry that I went behind your back but I need help I need to get into treatment I don't know what else to do and I'm I'm really struggling here at this halfway house and when she saw the look in my eyes she I think she understood and so then at that point she agreed to allow me to go then we filed for a motion with the judge to um, see if he would give me permission. And he, he, they typically go with, you know, whatever your probation officer suggests. And so she supported me and I got to, got to leave that halfway house and go into treatment. And whew, treatment, man, I tell you, <laughs> it's not easy when you first go. No, it's not. And I got there and I just, I had a lot of demons, a lot of, you know, a lot of issues, you know, from my childhood that I'd never dealt with, um, you know, anger issues, still wanting to use, you know, all of these things. And I was a very negative person. Most of my life, I was a very negative person. And so when I got to treatment, it took a very long time for me to break out of that. 
And I hated all the girls there. Everything they did annoyed me. And I'm pregnant on top of it all. (laughs) You got it all going on. Yeah. And so luckily they took, you know, pregnant, pregnant women. And it was a much better environment for me. It was much safer. It was more loving. Um, You didn't have people they're using, right? Yeah, nobody was using. So it was it was uh, a a lockdown facility. So we were there. If we did go out, we always had escorts, but we weren't allowed to go anywhere. Um, and so they kept a very close eye on us. But we were saturated with you know church and prayer and reading our Bibles and doing uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and it was, it was a really, it was a really good program. I was, I want to say five months pregnant at this point, And I still was having a lot of issues with the girls. They just didn't like me because I was not a nice person. And I got into an argument with a girl and it almost turned physical. I jumped up out of my chair and I'm in her face and you know, I'm, five months pregnant and I'm threatening this girl to kick her ass. And that was, that was crazy. I can't even believe I acted like that. And so the director of the program called my probation officer. So here comes my probation officer and she pulls me into an office and she says, what the hell are you doing? I will take you and I will put you back in that jail. And you will spend the rest of your time while you're fighting your case in that jail cell. And not only that, but I will make sure that you never see your son again. Oh, Oh, I know. I know. And that was, that was a pivotal moment for me too. And I told her, my eyes started filling up with tears and I just looked at her and I said, listen, please, please give me another chance. I'll do anything. Like you won't hear another peep out of me. I will change my attitude. She says, well, let me, let me go talk to the director and see if they're willing to give you another chance. If they're not, I'm sorry. So she left me in the office sitting by myself. My heart was just pounding. I was so scared. And I thought, this is it. I'm going back to the, that, hell hole and I'm going to lose my son. Mm. And so she goes into uh, another room with the director and they were in there for about five, seven minutes. And then she comes back out and she walks into the room I'm in and she said, they're going to give you another chance. Um, And I just, uh, I can't even tell you, it was this instant relief came over my body and I said, thank you. Thank you so much. And she ended up leaving. I went up to my room and I just dropped to my knees and I started praying and I just begged God, please, God, I have issues. I'm ugly inside and I don't want to be this way anymore. I want to change. I want your, your love and in that life that you speak about. I want to be cleansed. I want that in my heart. I want to see people through eyes of love and I want to be a kind person and I don't know how to change. 
and I'm asking you for your help. And it didn't happen overnight, but he answered my prayer. Uh. And, and he slowly started changing my heart. And each day it was, my heart got softer and softer. And I, and all of the things that I used to notice about the girls, you know, all the negative things, I started really noticing all the beautiful things and all the, you know, the wonderful things about each and every one of them. And I really started to love them. And for me, that was so new. That was, and, and I started really developing bonds and friendships with these girls and it felt wonderful. And by the time, so I'm fighting my case this whole time and I'm praying, asking God, you know, <laughs> to not put me, to not, to help me not go to prison. Um, but if he did, if that was the, his will for my life, that he prepare me for that. He prepared me mentally, spiritually. And so my, my relationship started building with those, with the women there. And then it started to become a community. And it was a community of love and support. And uh, I ended up giving birth to my son. So they let me, my mom flew in from North Dakota. And I mean, from California to North Dakota. And she came in for the birth. She rented a hotel room for a couple of weeks. And she was there with me at the hospital when I gave birth to him. And I got to spend a couple of weeks with him, which was wonderful. But then I had to go back to treatment and my mom had to leave with my son and that was really hard that would be very hard oh it was it was it was it was devastating and i got back to treatment and all the girls were just so loving on me but i was really just i was struggling and i it was i didn't get out of bed for a couple days and finally, the girls were so worried about me that they came in and they just told me, listen, you've got to get up. We, we're here to love on you and support you. And we, you just, you've got to get up. You can't, get, you can't fall into this dark place. And so they ended up convincing me to get up. And they were just so kind and sweet and loving to me. And, you know, what could have been a very bad situation and I, I could have fallen into, spiraled um, because of their love and support, I, I was able to snap out of it. and. Um, <clears throat> I was, that, that was just amazing to, to see all these people who I hated at one point. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. <clears throat> and so they snapped me out of that. And, you know, granted I was, I think I was just getting finished to wrap. I was getting finished, uh, with my case. They were getting ready to sentence me. And... <clears throat> The, uh, the sentencing day came and they ended up giving me four years. And for me, you know, I, I just was like, okay, well, at least it's not 10. Right. <laughs> and that was, that's a very long time. For, that was, it felt like. But was there a uh, possibility of parole? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I would have, I had to do the four years. Oh, okay. But but I would get, if I stayed out of trouble, I would get good time. And if I did drug treatment inside of prison, then I would, and I successfully completed it, then I would get a year off my sentence. So it was like 10 months, good time I would get, and then a year. So almost two years. Okay. 
will get off my sentence. And so when I looked at it from that perspective, it was easier for me to say, you know, I can do this. Right. It's not that long. Right. And I had this new mindset, this new perspective on life because of the changes that you know, God had done in me and, and um, the love and support that these girls had given me had really changed me and made me a better person. And I thought, you know, going to prison might not be that bad. You know, yeah, I'm scared. Of course there's fear. Yeah. I started looking at it from what are the positive things about going to prison? Because you really have to break it down. You do. I mean, you can sit there and focus on everything that's negative. Then it's just going to be all negative. And I, I'm sitting here, I can't necessarily think of anything positive, but there would have to be something, something you could learn, something you could benefit from. So some of the positive things about going to prison that I, I tried to focus on was the programming. So the drug treatment program, uh, you know, I learned more about what it was going to be like. It was an intensive nine month drug treatment program. And I was looking at the success rate of that program and it was really high. And I was excited to, be in, be in that type of an environment, uh, you know, and then I was excited about the, the, the possibility of, I could go to school. I could get my degree if I wanted to. They also offered all kinds of other programming. They had church and they had, you know, choir, which I eventually got into and they had programs upon programs upon programs. And so when I got in there, I kind of, I just hit the ground running. I just started signing up for all kinds of programs. I didn't waste any time. I didn't waste time playing cards. I didn't waste time doing anything that wasn't productive. I just enrolled in every class and program I possibly could in the whole entire time there. I, that's what I did. I got involved with church and I, I hung out with people that were not getting into trouble <clears throat> and people that were positive influences in my, in my life. And it's amazing, it really is true that the people you surround yourself with, you know, play a huge, huge part in the type of person you're going to, you know, the way that you're going to be. You're absolutely and, right. And, yeah. and instead of going in with a viewpoint of feeling sorry for yourself, you went in with a viewpoint of how can I better myself? And you had obviously a great incentive because you had a little boy that was waiting for you to come out. But what what a great attitude to go in with. And also you are 100% correct that it is all, it is a lot about the people that you surround yourself with. And you obviously went, you know, you surrounded yourself with the right people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just kept that momentum going. Uh, You know, even if I was going to prison, I thought, you know what? I might be going to a place that most people would consider to be a dark place, but I'm going to be a light and I'm going to give love to the women that need it. And I'm going to continue working on bettering myself. And I believe, you know, I felt in my heart that I had an opportunity to, um, to leave that place a better person. Wow. Shelly, when you say a degree, were you working on a college degree or are you talking about your high school degree? College. College. Yeah. So I graduated. Yeah. I I graduated high school barely. (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, you had the opportunity to uh, get your bachelor. You could get your AA, your bachelor's. I, I don't think they went any higher than that, but it was all free and funded. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and this is, in so, North, this is in North Dakota, right? No, this was in uh, over in the Bay Area uh, at a women's prison in Dublin, in Dublin, California. Okay. Yeah. And I think I was really fortunate too, because I don't know about all prisons and I don't know if all prisons have that type of programming. Um, I don't like either. Yeah. And from what I've heard, especially from the men, is that a lot of the prisons they you know various men that i i met at like the halfway house it told me that they didn't have a lot of programming and they didn't have a lot of opportunities to you know um a lot of, or opportunities to take programs to help change their lives and that's unfortunate it because, is yeah it is it, you know you can punish people but if you don't teach them a new way to live and a new way to be then you're just it's 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 ridiculous all you are and, is perpetuating the cycle if you just do punishment exactly. it, it's just perpetuating the cycle and yeah. i know this podcast is not about prison reform but you know anybody listening that has any say in any type of correctional institution or any type of justice position i mean look at what happened here in this particular prison in california and take note you are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727 314 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narcanon Ojai, visit their website at narcanonojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 1-866-231-5924. That's one eight six six two three one five nine two four. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. And so I, I managed to completely stay out of trouble. And I, I can honestly tell you that Prison, although I'd never want to go back, um, it wasn't the worst experience I've ever had. It actually helped me become a better person. And I really developed some bonds and friendships with some of the women there that, you know, had made some, you know, grave mistakes and just wanted to move on and be a better person. And that's really, I'd say majority of the population, at least in the prison I was at, they just... They wanted to get done with their time 
get out, move on and be a better person. Right. Right. And so I ended up getting out of prison in, I think, July of 2016. And I just continued. Uh, I hit the ground running. <laughs> I did. Yeah, I hit the ground running and I just, I kept going down that same path uh, and just doing the right thing. And when, when I was at the halfway house, you know, everybody said, oh, you're going to the halfway house and, you know, the guys are going to try to, you know, get at you. And there's people are always using drugs and especially going to the halfway house in the tenderloin in San Francisco, <laughs> there's drug use all around you. It's everywhere. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, there was, there was some fear with being around drugs like that. There was some fear that, you know, I didn't want to have some guy, <laughs> you know, sweep me off my feet. And then, you know, cause that's, that's, I see a lot of women, you know, hooking up with men at the halfway house and then their, their life spiral. Right. And you know, we're humans and it's, it's nice to have a, a attention from uh, the opposite sex. And, you know, I was in prison for, or, you know, treatment in prison for almost four years. Right. Uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I think in a way I was, I was vulnerable. I think most people, when they get out, they are, they're vulnerable. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, but I managed to stay away from the, from the guys. I stayed focused. I, I got, uh, went, got myself into a nice, a good church and a Bible study. And then I, um, I got enrolled in college and I just really started, uh, and I got enrolled in, or not enrolled. I got, um, involved in volunteering and giving back to my community. And so all of those things kept me very busy. So I really didn't have time for any, for much else. <laughs> yeah. And while I was there at the halfway house, I was in the TV room and the news came on and it was uh, the news. The, the reporter was saying, if you have a criminal record and you want to work in tech, then code tenderloin is the, is the program for you. They're helping underserved communities like the firmly incarcerated break into tech companies every day, companies like LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and I just stopped in my tracks and I thought, I would love to work in tech. You know, I've always kind of been a geek. Uh, <laughs> so when it's weird because when I was getting high, my favorite thing to do was build computers. And I, I eventually started uh, my own, you know, I was selling drugs and then I would also fix computers on the side. Because in, in North Dakota, there was nothing. There wasn't even a dry cleaners, let alone a computer repair company. <laughs> So I started doing that on the side. I, I was, I, I got really good at it and I thought, why not use that? You know, there's, there's that geek inside of me. I could go work for a tech company and, you know, tech companies, they pay really well. They have great benefits and I would be able to have a good life if I could just get into one of these companies. And so I signed up for the program and it, what it was, it was a, a job readiness program that taught you how to interview, taught you how to write a resume, taught you how to sell yourself. And then the, and then what they, they had all these relationships with all these different tech companies. So we get to go on field trips 
And one day we were at Twitter, next day we're at Microsoft, next day we're at LinkedIn, uh, we're another day we're at Nerd Wallet, and we got to hang out and and network and develop relationships with 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 these people that were working at these companies. And when I was at one of the companies, I um, one of the girls there said, you know, we're hiring, you should apply. And so I did. So Code Tenderline just helped me craft my resume. So I used the resume they helped me to apply. And um, they called me back for an interview. <laughs> I know. And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I was maybe two or three two or three months out of prison. And here I was getting ready to go interview with a, with a major tech company. Wow. And so Code Tenderloin helped me prepare for that interview. And they, I, I did so many mock interviews that by the time I went in for my actual interview, <laughs> I nailed it. I oh, nailed awesome. it. Yeah, and she hired me right on the spot. She said, you know, I don't think I need to, to, to interview anyone else. Um, I think you're the perfect fit and I'd love to offer you the position. And I, of course, accepted (laughs) and I just couldn't believe it. I left that interview the happiest I think I'd ever, you know, I had been in, 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 in my life. It was just, it was surreal (laughs) for me. I knew my life was going to drastically change. And so I went and I told all my friends, all my family, I posted it on, you know, social media. I got the job and, um, and then I had to, well, oh, well, let me back it up. So the interviewer, after she offered me the position, I was forthcoming and I told her, well, listen, you know, I, I need to tell you something. I have a record. Is this going to be a problem? And she said, I don't know, but just be honest about it on the background check and, um, you know, we'll see what happens. So I filled out the background check. Of course, I was honest. And of course, you know, I knew it was going to get flagged. And so they, they sent me an email and they said, you know, based on the background check results, we may or may not offer you a position at this time, but you have three to five days to explain to us why this showed up on your background check. So I took, I, 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 t- I looked at this like an opportunity to really let them know like, yeah, I've made some mistakes, but that's not who I am today. Right. And here's everything that I've done to turn my life around. And all of those programs and classes that I did in prison, I got certificates of, of completion for all of the ones I, you know, for, for every single one of them. Right. And so that, to me, that's my proof that I put in the work to change. And so I scanned them all, I scanned them all to my Google drive. And then I I wrote this letter and I said, you know, I've done so much work on myself and you know, this is what I've done and here's why you should hire me. And so I sent them the letter with a bunch of these certificates and crossed my fingers. So while I'm waiting for, which, I think it was maybe an, another another month till I, I I fully knew what was going to happen. But while I was waiting, <clears throat> they had actually sent me uh, a link to this website, 
and I didn't know what it was because they had also sent me my offer letter and I had to, you know, sign a bunch of paperwork and um, for the onboarding and but then attached to one of those emails was this link. So I clicked on it, not knowing what it was. And it was this website for this, uh, called the fair chance ordinance. And so I started reading the website and it, it said on the website that the fair chance ordinance covered San Francisco. And what it was, was a, uh, an ordinance that protected people who had criminal records from discrimination. And the guidelines for this was that if the person had been deemed rehabilitated, like for example, taken uh, drug treatment programs and had proof of that, then they couldn't be discriminated against. And the other part of this ordinance stated that if the person's crime doesn't directly relate to the job they're applying for, then they can't be discriminated against. So, you know, if I robbed a bank and I was trying to go work at Wells Fargo, they had, you know, they would have reasons not to hire me. Or you were a computer hacker and you're going to go work at, you know, Google yeah. or something like that. Yeah. yeah I get yeah. it. So, um, so my crime didn't directly relate to me uh working in tech right it was i, I was a drug dealer <laughs> <laughs> so it had no relevance and so i had those two things going for me and when i read this i was instantly filled with hope because during this time that i was waiting for the background check results i started doing research to see if the company i was applying for hired people with criminal records and everything that I had read was that it, they don't. Okay. And they wouldn't hire me. So I was getting discouraged. But then when I read that Fair Chance Ordinance website, I instantly was filled with hope. And from what it seemed like to me was that they had to give me a chance. They had to, yeah. because it's, it's it right here. It's the law. Yeah. And finally they get a hold of me, but they didn't do it by email. They, they sent me a letter a FedEx letter. And when I got back to the halfway house, they gave me the letter and I opened it and I saw it was from the company I'd applied for. And I knew it wasn't going to be good because if I would have gotten a job, they would have just emailed me or called me. And I opened up that package and it said, you know, unfortunately, based on your background check results, we are not going to offer you employment at this time. And that was hard. That yeah. was really hard. And I, and I was confused because I thought for sure this company who sent me this information about the fair chance ordinance knows about it or else why would they send it to me? Yeah. So I ended up emailing the recruiter that I had been working with and said, Hey, what's going on here? Why are you not going to hire me? I fit the requirements. I fall under this, these guidelines for the fair chance ordinance. And the response was that their decision was final and it, there was no going to be no further discussion about it. And okay. yeah. And I was just like, <laughs> Are you serious? Like, I couldn't believe this was happening. And I called my mom and I was, I was just really upset. And 
I didn't know what to do. You know, here I had put in all this effort to better my life. I wanted to just a, a second chance. <clears throat> I had this, I felt like I had gotten my second chance uh, and it was just ripped out, ripped away from me. And, and I just felt like, you know what, is anyone ever going to give me a chance? Am I always going to be judged for this worst thing that I've done for the rest of my life? Am I going to have, in fact, am I going to be stuck working at some dead end job because they're the only ones that will give me a, a, an opportunity. And I just felt completely defeated. And I called my mom and I was crying and she, I had told her about the fair chance ordinance. Right. And so she knew, and she said, well, contact them and, and see what they say. And I said, mom, seriously, they, they, they would, they know about it because they sent me the information. So they know they can't, like them not hiring me, they know that they can or can't. And she said, just call them. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> and she asked me that the, it was a wonderful lady and she answered the phone and she asked me what company had discriminated against me. And I told her and her reaction was a reaction that made me concerned. And I, and I asked her like, why, why do you sound concerned? And she says, well, honestly, I don't know if I can get your job back. I've never fought a company this large and, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm willing to try, but I just, just, just know that you might not get your job back. And I said, well, what do I have to lose at this point? Let's, let's just like nothing. They've already said right. no. Yeah. And the good thing for me is at that point in my life, I was staying, I was living at the halfway house. I didn't have any bills. Um, I had a cell phone, but my, my father was paying for that. And, um, you know, your rent was 25% of whatever you made. So if you didn't make any money, you didn't have to pay any rent and they provided our meals. So I was able to, to, to stand up and, and, and to fight this. I, I think a lot of people, probably wouldn't have been in that type of position and would have had to just move on and find another job, but I was able to stick it out. And so we went toe to toe and we fought and we went back and forth for a couple months. And, you know, their, their reasoning was, well, what if she relapses? She hasn't been out of prison long enough. You know, she's a liability. And, and, the the lady at the fair chance ordinance says i don't care she's been deemed rehabilitated and she deserves a second chance just like anybody else yeah and so they you know what's crazy is they they didn't even know about the fair chance ordinance and they sent it to you and they sent it to me they had wow. no idea they had no idea nobody had ever held their feet to the fire nobody had ever stood up for themselves wow. i was the first person Shelley, is that fair chance ordinance, is that in other states as well or just California? Do you know? It is in other cities. I'm not sure. Cities which or states? Cities, uh, or I mean other other states okay. and in, in various cities. Um, I think Seattle, Los Angeles, Chicago. I mean, there's a few. You'd have to look on the website, but it, it tells you the list of cities that do have it. I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah. So there are, there are, there is hope for people that are in other major cities um, to have this type of backing. 
Okay. But I just don't know all the exact cities. Um, but if you look it up, you can, you can find out. Okay. I will do that. So I stopped your story anyway. Keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want people to know about that. I want people to leverage it. I don't think it's leveraged quite enough. And it's not like it's something that's publicly announced to people or, or they have, you know, advertising for it. It's, it's kind of just this secret little thing. It almost seems like, well, Okay, so then is what is the website so that the people listening can can go there and check it out? Yeah, just Google Fair Chance Ordinance. Fair Chance Ordinance. Okay, because yep. I think that would be important because I can't yeah, yeah, I can't believe you'd be the only one that's discriminated against for having jail oh, yeah. time. No. Yeah. It it's it happens to every, everybody that has a record, it seems like. And you know, it's crazy as I get messages from people all the time of women that I was in prison with um, telling me that they can't find anything. And that's not, doing that to people is not going to help our communities. No, no. (laughs) And it's not up to the company to have the viewpoint, well, what if she relapses? You know, she hasn't been out that long. I mean, that's such an arbitrary decision. You had all the certificates, you had done all of the programs that were available to you, including getting a college degree in prison, I don't, I don't get where they come off, you know, with their own kind of idea of like, well, you know, she might relapse. I, I, that's not, that's not acceptable to me. I agree. I agree. And, um, so Come to find out, you know, they had no idea. Um, I think because nobody had challenged them, you know, and yeah. Big tech company, who's going to challenge them? Right, right. And I think what happens with people that have criminal records, they already feel, uh, you know, bad enough, uh, you know, their their self-esteem is, you know, struggling to some degree for the things that they've done. They know there's a stigma. And so that, that rejection is just part of the, you know, it's like, it's, oh, I was rejected again. Okay. You know, nail in the coffin. Yeah. And they, they start to buy into that. Yep. Uh, Yep. So we went back and forth and finally they realized that they were going to have to give me a a chance. Uh, They didn't really have much of a choice. And so they said, okay, fine, we're going to, we're going to give you a second chance, but you have to re-interview again. And because that original position that you had applied for has been filled and now you're up against three other applicants. (laughs) Back to the drawing board. (laughs) Yeah. I just thought, you know, this is going to be their way of not hiring me. They're going to say somebody better interviewed, somebody more qualified, and they're going to be able to legally not hire me. And I just, I was very close. I, you know, this whole process has been, was very stressful for me, but then, you know, knowing that I had to re-interview again was just, I was not excited, (laughs) but I, but I, I said, okay, fine. I'm going to jump through your hoops. I'm going to do, why give up now? I just couldn't, I couldn't give up now. And so I prepared for an interview again and I went in this, you know, I went in even more nervous because I knew that there was a lot at stake at this point. Right. And I interviewed with the same woman and the dynamics were completely different. Right. And needless to say, I did not interview as well as I would have liked. 
And she asked me if I had any questions for her. And I said, yes. And this is probably one of the best interview questions you can ask is, is there any reason why you wouldn't hire me? Because it's a chance for you to get feedback from them and to know how well you did. Right. And so she answered the question and she said, well, I don't see a lot of sales uh, skills shining through, but that doesn't mean you won't get the job. It just means that I, you know, I didn't notice, you, you know, you, you might not be the best candidate. And I'm thinking to myself, no sales skills. I was a drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> good point. I, that's right? a good point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, she says, you know, we do offer training, but we'll have to see how the other, in, the other candidates interview. And I just, all I heard was you, you didn't get the job. And I left and came home and I was so like physically and mentally just exhausted. And I just went up to my room I saw a couple of people that I knew at the halfway house and I just said, I didn't get the job and I went to bed. I woke up the next day and I just started processing it and trying to come to terms with the fact that I didn't get this job and what was I going to do next? And then the very next day after that, I get a phone call and it's the company that's, it's a recruiter. And saying, hi, is this Shelly? Well, yes. Can I ask who's calling? And they told me and I was, okay. Like, why are you calling me? <laughs> Congratulations, you got the job. And I just screamed, what? Are you serious? And she, <laughs> and she says, she said, wow, I've never heard such an awesome response before. <laughs> I said, you have no idea what I've been through. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this. This is amazing. And I, I felt like I had just, life would, was just breathed, you know, had been breathed into me. And <sighs> words can't even explain that, that what I was feeling at that moment. It was just, just pure joy. Wow. And, yeah. And... I ended up, um, uh, you know, I ended up starting and I remember my first day of work, just walking in and just, I'm looking around and I'm just completely in just awe and shock. It was, it was surreal. It was magical. It was just, it was amazing. Wow. And my perspective was completely different from anybody else's perspective there. And I felt, I felt blessed and grateful and privileged. And I just, all these amazing, you know, feelings. And I worked that way. I worked as if I felt that way. And so while other people were complaining about this and complaining about that, I'm thinking to myself, what are you complaining about, man? You have you a job. Work, you work for an amazing company. You make great money. You have awesome benefits. I'd never worked for a company like this in my life. And I just was so happy. 
I mean, they, they could have told me to go and, you know, scrub the floors with a toothbrush and I would have done it with a smile on my face. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah. And, and so my managers quickly grew to love me because obviously I was easy to work with. I was, I was teachable, I was moldable, I was grateful. And that really goes a long way. And so because of my attitude, I was able to quickly uh, move up in the company. And so only I was there maybe two months and I'd already gotten voted MVP. Well, let me tell you, getting voted MVP typically takes a person anywhere from six months to a year just to get that title. I had done it in two months. I think I was the first person to ever get MVP that fast. Wow. And then I was being picked to go on special trips to be an ambassador for the company. And I was, I was sent to Florida and I was sent to Seattle and I was sent to Las Vegas. So I was getting to go on these really cool trips. And then they had, they decided to plan this big special trip for all of the top performers, but only one person from each location got to go and they had to be nominated by their management and they picked me. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, I was treated very well and, and I'll be honest, there was some fear. There was some fear that I was going to be treated differently, that people weren't going to like me. Um, because of my my record and but i thought to myself you know there could be some truth to that okay but you know what i'm not going to let that hold me back if that happens i'll cross that bridge when i get to it and i will i'll kill him with kindness <laughs> and production and production when you have a good production record it's like yeah. you have something to argue with you know yeah and so all of that fear that could have deterred me um, or held me back, I didn't allow it. And it ended up not even happening. How no. many times do we stress out about things that could happen and they never happen? More right? times than we should. <laughs> yeah. Shelly, do you still work um, there? Do yes, you still I do. work there? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, so I... Um, so I got my first promotion in six months and then I got my second promotion, which is a really big promotion. Um, was that almost two years later? Okay. And then I got another promotion, um, a few months after that. Okay. So, so how long have you worked there now? Three years. Okay. Three years. Yep. Coming up March 20th will be three years. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. But I also saw that you are, you are advocating for companies to hire people such as yourself with backgrounds of incarceration. You're advocating for that, aren't you? Correct. So this whole experience really, I guess you could say lit a fire under my ass. And when these breakthroughs happened for me because I didn't let fear hold me back. I thought, you know what? I need to share this story with others because I want, you know, our stories have power and I wanted to be able to give others hope and to inspire them to reach further than they would have otherwise. 
And so I started becoming this advocate and, you know, there was this program that I did in prison called um, Defy Ventures. And, and, and that's really that, that program, um, that and RDAP, which was, which was the drug, the nine month intensive drug treatment program I did, those two programs really made, I think the biggest impact in my life and Defy Ventures was an entrepreneurship and leadership training program. And is it only in prisons? Uh, no, you can do it when you get out of prison too. Okay. But yeah. And, but it's for formerly incarcerated. Got it. It's, it's called it's, Defy Ventures. Defy, like defying the odds. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Defy Ventures. And it was, so I, I learned to, um, how, how to start my own business. And I ended up having to do a pitch competition, like a Shark Tank style competition. Oh, and cool. all these, um, you know, CEOs and executives from major corporations came into the prison and volunteered their time to be a judge. And that was the first time I had ever done public speaking. And I was so scared and I didn't want to do it. And, but, you know, one of the things that the program taught me was to not let fear hold you back. That fear is a part of life. It's normal to feel that, but to not, to dance with it instead. Right. To not do something because you're afraid is the wrong thing to do. Exactly. Push through it and do it anyway. Yeah. And so there, so Catherine Hoke, who was the CEO at the time, um, she did, she recorded herself doing this video and it was like a week before our competition. And she said, I'm sure you're all scared at this point. You're probably very tired, but I just want to encourage you to keep going and to not give up. You've come way too far to just back out now. And she says, I know there's a lot of fear, but just know that when you get up on stage, that nobody is there to judge you and that everyone there is to support you and love on you. And they want to see you succeed and win. So just don't give up. And I thought, how can you argue with that? You know, exactly. Exactly. So the day of the competition came and of course, you know, I, I, I thought there's no way I'm going to win, but you know what, I'm going to get up there and, and do my best. And I got up, I got up on stage. It was my turn to go. And I thought I was going to throw up, <laughs> but I gave my pitch and I used that nervousness. It was the first time I'd ever gotten it up and, you know, spoke in front of people and I delivered flawlessly. Wow. And yeah. And I ended up winning. Wow. Yeah. That was a defining moment for me too, because at that point in my life, I saw the strength that I actually did have inside of me that I never utilized. And here I was thinking, there's no way I'm going to win. And I won. And I thought, man, look, look what happens when you don't let fear hold you back. Right. You know, the possibilities are endless. And I just, I started thinking, man, if I just can pr- pursue my life like this from now on, I'm going to be okay. Right. That's exactly what I did. But that, that's what built up my public speaking skills and my, my courage to be a voice for the voiceless and to be that advocate. And so armed with this new power, I guess you could say, you know, um, you know, armed with this new power and then having gone through this experience of discrimination, I thought, you know what, I'm going to say something about this. I'm going to be an advocate. I'm going to try to, you know, 
um, I'm gonna I'm gonna put myself out there to 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 tell my story so that I can help others. Because if I don't share my story, I'm not gonna help anyone. Right. And what's the point of that? Right. Right. So then um, I started getting opportunity. The CEO, uh, so Catherine Hope, the CEO of Defy Ventures, um, contacted me uh, and asked me to come do some speaking engagements with her. And one of them was at Google. And I, <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm going to speak at Google and share my story. <laughs> and then have you heard of a company called Duarte? Yes. Yeah. So I went and spoke there. And um, I just, you know, it's the, the ball really started to, to roll as far as like these speaking opportunities. And, and then I got an, uh, asked to come and do like a Ted talk style, um, presentation at this HR, uh, recruiting conference called hiring success. And I thought I'd be an idiot not to. (laughs) (laughs) That one I saw that one's on YouTube, right? Yeah, so yeah. they're they're all on YouTube, I believe, um, except for one. But yeah, so I, you know, and then after doing after doing that presentation, um, it really touched a lot of people. So then other opportunities opened up because of that. Wow. So then I spoke at another HR and recruiting conference, and then I spoke at another conference in in Berlin that was an HR and recruiting conference. Wow. And I spoke at this. Uh, I was asked, I was invited out to go to, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Founders Forum. No. It, yeah, so it's another um, group that's, uh, they're in Europe, but it's um, very successful entrepreneurs that have this group called the Founders Forum, and my story got into, you know, made it into their circle, and they flew me out to speak, and and the next thing I know, I'm thinking, you know, why don't I just do a TED talk? <laughs> <laughs> and I had no idea how to go about it. And I actually had a, a, a mentor of mine, a, a, a friend of mine. Um, she had done two of them. So I reached out to her and asked her for guidance. And, you know, she helped me and filled out the application. And next thing I know, I'm getting an email saying, hey, you've been selected um, you know, you, you made it into the, the final selection, uh, of people and we're, we're going to do interviews and you're, you know, your, your, your interview is this day. And awesome. I know I couldn't believe it. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to be on a TEDx stage. Like that's easy. Right. And I, I've literally only been out of prison maybe, maybe three and a half years, if that, yeah. And here I am working at an amazing company and I'm getting ready to do a TEDx. I've done, been speaking on stages, you know, across, you know, the world (laughs) at this point, I'm an international speaker and now I'm going to be doing a TEDx and it was just, and then I, and I knew that I had to do a TEDx that was about hiring formerly incarcerated because I had to be a part of the solution. I had to be a part of educate, educating the public about the benefits of hiring the formerly incarcerated. And I had to educate the public that people can change yep. and that they deserve a second chance. And by not giving them a second chance is, 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 
you know, only harming our communities. Yep. And so I started writing my TED talk and I had a lot of, a lot of help, you know, cause I wanted it to be just right. And I had three coaches. Typically people have one, I had three, <laughs> you know, but, um, but that was an amazing experience. And uh, I feel so blessed to be that voice and be the advocate. And now the prison that I was at um, has asked me to go and teach a reentry class. And so the, this reentry class is, was taught by the, um, by the employees of the prison. And it was, so any women that were getting out of prison within the next um, six months had to take this reentry class. And so here, you know, the, the correctional officer is, is teaching this class about what to expect when they get out of prison and what to do, what the halfway house is like. And they just were not. They have not experienced it. They have not been there, done that. No. And the women were like, what the hell are you teaching me this reentry class for? You've never even been to jail. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so uh, the the person had heard about all the work that I was doing and, and how, you know, I you know, was, was excelling and, and, and doing well. And so they asked me to come and, and speak and teach this class. And I jumped all over it. Oh, yeah. Like, Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> so this will be, uh, I'm getting ready to go teach it again. I think March 3rd, but this will be my third time teaching the class. And I can't even tell you how incredible it is. Um, uh, the, the, the feedback that the women have given me and, and had just have shared that they are so grateful that I coming in there to share my experience and my story with them, that they know that they they trust me you know and that i give them hope i believe it yeah and it is absolutely just magic it is it is incredible and by the time the class is done and they have to leave they're just lined up to you know give me praise hug me and just incredibly grateful that i can teach that class. And, and that for me is the most rewarding, you know, experience. And so now, you know, giving back and volunteering in prisons, you know, is something that is a must for me. Yep. I can see that. I can see that. Shelly, is your son with you? No. So he is still with my mother. Okay. And, um, the reason why that is, is is because, you know, she's had him since birth and they have developed quite the bond. And so when I got out of prison, I thought, you know, transition was just going to naturally happen and he was going to come be with me, but he, he didn't know me. Right. So he was not comfortable with that. And he was, he was really getting upset. And so I didn't want to disrupt him, you know, cause he didn't do anything wrong. Right. I did. And so, um, he has a, a, a wonderful, loving, stable home, you know, with my mother. And I just figured when he gets to the age where he, um, you know, 
knows knows me and uh, as his mother I'll let that you know let him make that choice I don't want to force anything upon him and I think at first I was trying to force it and it was backfiring on me so I'm just taking it slow and you know going to visit him as much as I can and he's and close to you he's, he's in Sacramento oh, okay so he's about two hours away from me okay okay but when I can't see him uh I will FaceTime he yes. loves doing the little filters with the, the, the funny faces and stuff. <laughs> you know, Shelly, yeah. I think you made the right decision. I mean, it's it, one of the most important things with children, as you know, based from your childhood, is to have a very stable, loving home environment, which you didn't have. So he's got that. And, you know, that's super important. And I I think that when he's old enough to, you know, have like an adult conversation with you and understand you know, everything you went through, I think you guys will be friends. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, um, you know, my mother, you know, she's, 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 you know, older now and she, um, she is like the most amazing mother to him. I'm like, where were you? Where was this person? <laughs> where were you when I, I was a kid? <laughs> <laughs> she said she feels like, um, Jace is her, her do over, like her, her chance to, to really, you know, everything that she's learned and all the mistakes that she's made, um, she is now going to um, use that to be an amazing, incredible parent to him, which she has been. I can't complain. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, and you know, honestly, what I think he's going to understand is that the two most important women in his life, um, you know, went through what they went through and they're way better now. And he gets the benefit of that. So yeah. there you go. I agree. Yeah. Well, Go ahead. Now, I was just going to say, um, we can wrap it up whenever you're ready, but I want to make sure that we go over some of the resources that you mentioned before so that everybody, you know, remembers to check these out. Yes, absolutely. So some of the resources um, is the Fair Chance Ordinance. And right. if you look, if you just Google that, um, and I can send you the link um, or, you know, maybe we can put all the links in yep. the uh, in the podcast. Yep. Or in I will the, do that. Yeah, but it's the Fair Chance Ordinance. Um, and then if you're in the Bay Area, there's Code Tenderloin, okay, which is the job readiness program that helps people um, with criminal records break into tech. And then there's Defy Ventures, which is the entrepreneurship and leadership training program that helps people um, maybe in other areas that don't have the Fair Chance Ordinance, but it teaches you how to start your own business. Do you know if that's nationwide? Yes. Okay. Yes, good. good. Yeah. Yep. Um, they offer classes online that you can take. Okay. And I think, yeah, those are the three, three, three main ones that, that helped change my life. Okay, good. Shelly, thank you so much for taking the time to, to tell us your story. It's an amazing story. I think, I think it's, it, it's just such a great story. And you, I usually always make someone tell us their point of no return, but you added that in when you kind of reached your moments when you knew you had to change. So it's all good. But I, I always think that when, when someone tells a story like yours or like any of the stories that we have on the podcast, it's going to ring true with someone that's listening and help them, you know, reach for, reach for help. And so I can't thank you enough for sharing your story with us. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, I do have a, a, a message or a, a, a story to tell you too. Um, this girl reached out to me on Facebook. She had watched my Ted talk 
And she said, there's this job that I really wanted to apply for, but I didn't because of my criminal record. But then when I watched your TED talk, you, you, you inspired me to reach further. She says, I wanted to let you know that I applied for the job and I got it. Oh, <laughs> doesn't that make everything you went through worthwhile? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So yeah, that's what keeps me going. That's an awesome story. Once again, yeah. Shelly. Oh, and how can people find you on Facebook? You're on Facebook as Shelly Winner, right? Yes. And LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, and it's S-H-E-L-L-E-Y. Correct. W-I-N-N-E-R. And yeah, I'm, I'm the winner. You are a winner. I love it. Shelly, once again, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Wow. <laughs> you know, that's all I can say is, Wow such an amazing story, truly the story of someone who, um, you know, really has just taken their life on a rocket ride after, you know, going through addiction and selling drugs and incarceration. I mean, yeah, quite the story. For anybody listening, if you think your story is worse than that, um, probably isn't. Sorry to evaluate. But you, the point is you can do something about it. Shelly did Shelly's life got better because she decided to do something about it. And that's the whole point. You have to make that decision to improve your life. If it's not you that's addicted, if I'm talking to the loved ones of addicted people, you need to make a decision to get them help. You need to help them make that decision to get help. Okay. So thank you for listening. We will be back again next week. Next week will be the last episode of our third year of recording and we'll have an interview. Not sure who it is yet, but hopefully you'll like it. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and also check us out on YouTube and subscribe there as well. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back again next week. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.